Chapter 17 Salacious Stories Admitted At noon Wednesday, Judge Roan announced that he would reverse his ruling striking from the records the testimony of Conley regarding perversion and of having watched for Frank on previous occasions. Great excitement prevailed in the courtroom when the court made the new ruling. Solicitor Dorsey was applauded at his victory. It was the first of a series of ovations given the plucky young Solicitor General. On this occasion, however, it resulted in Attorney Arnold making a motion that the courtroom be cleared. Judge Roan refused to expel the audience and the lawyer applied for a mistrial. His request immediately was overruled. Judge Roan held that all of Conley's testimony would remain in the records. This gave Solicitor Dorsey the opportunity that he wanted to bring in witnesses to corroborate this part of the Negro's story. C.B. Dalton, named by Conley as the man he had seen go up to Frank's office with two women, was one of the last witnesses called by the state. He is a carpenter. He admitted going to the factory with Daisy Hopkins and says that on one occasion, this woman introduced him to the young factory superintendent. On more than one occasion, he swore he had seen women in Frank's private office. Frequently, he saw soft drinks there, he said, and on one occasion, the party had beer. On Thursday morning, after Dalton quitted the stand and Dr. F.H. Harris had completed his testimony, which was interrupted when he had collapsed on the stand the previous week, the state rested. The defense immediately opened their case. The first directed their guns on the testimony of Dr. Harris. Dr. Leroy Childs was called to the stand. He asserted that many of Dr. Harris's deductions were guesswork. It would be a, quote, wild guess, end quote, he said, to fix the length of time any food had been in a human being's stomach before death. Dr. Childs and other physicians in the days that followed refuted other statements made on the stand by the Secretary of the State Board of Health. Harry Scott, Pinkerton detective, was recalled by the defense Thursday afternoon. Attorney Arnold sought to draw from him that Conley had been schooled in making his statements to the police. His intention was to leave before the jury's mind the possibility that Conley gathered the remarkable knowledge of details and from that concocted his story. Scott admitted that on more than one occasion, he and other detectives had remarked to Conley when endeavoring to get the truth from him. That's won't do, Jim. It don't fit. On Friday, the eighth day of the trial, Frank's counsel called Daisy Hopkins to the stand. She flat-footedly contradicted the testimony of Dalton and James Conley, that she had ever visited the pencil factory for an immoral purpose. On this day, also, the defense introduced a cardboard model of the pencil factory, which was used through the rest of the trial to illustrate the testimony of witnesses. The testimony of George Epps, who declared that he had ridden to the center of town on the same car with Mary Fagan on the day of the murder, was attacked by W.M. Matthews and W.T. Hollis, motorman and conductor of the car on which the girl rode to town. Both carmen declared that they had seen the little girl on the car, but that Epps was not there. They also maintained that she did not get off at Marietta and Forsyth Streets, but rode around the turn to Broad and Hunter Streets. Blueprints of every floor of the pencil factory were also introduced on this day. They were made by Albert Kaufman, a civil engineer. In every feature of the trial, the defense spared no expense to place before the jury its evidence in the best form. Experts of various kinds were called to refute incriminating testimony, given by witnesses called by the state. The second week of the trial closed at noon Saturday with Herbert Schiff, Frank's young office assistant, on the witness stand. Through him, the defense began to weave their famous time alibi, but
by which they tried to prove it would have been impossible for Frank to have committed the murder. Schiff declared on the stand that it was Frank's custom to make out the financial statement every Saturday afternoon, and that the work could not have been completed in less than two to three hours. He was shown the financial statement for the week of April 26th and identified the handwriting as that of Frank. He was subjected to one of the most severe cross-examinations of the case, but his testimony was unshaken. On Monday, August 11th, the defense again renewed their attack on Dr. Harris's testimony. Dr. Willis Westmoreland, former president of the State Board of Health, Dr. T.H. Hancock, Dr. J.C. Olmsted, and Dr. George Bachman declared that any physician who attempted to fix the time of death by the condition of food in the stomach of a corpse was only hazarding a guess. On this day, also, the defense introduced a number of witnesses who swore that they would not believe C.B. Dalton on oath. They were nearly all from Walton County, where Dalton had previously resided, and all termed his character as bad. Later, the defense recalled Dalton himself and gained from him admissions that he had been arrested on several occasions in his past life on larceny charges. Miss Hattie Hall, stenographer and bookkeeper for Montauk Brothers, was called to add a link to the time alibi. She told of meeting Frank at Montauk Brothers on the morning of the day of the murder and his requesting her to come to the factory and do stenographic work for him. She asserted that he also asked her to come back that afternoon. Miss Hall testified that she had remained at the factory until two or three minutes after 12. She fixed the time of her departure by the blowing of the 12 o'clock whistle. Joel Hunter, an expert accountant and another proficient mathematician, declared that Frank could not have completed the financial report in much less than three hours. And there was other minor work on office account books which would take him anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours longer, he said. This meant that Frank, on the afternoon of April 26th, after Mary Fagan had been killed, carried on the routine office work of the factory. On Wednesday, the 15th day of the trial, Frank's character was put in issue. The move was not unexpected. In taking this step, counsel for the accused superintendent defied the state to produce witnesses who would put a blot on his character. Two former classmates at Cornell, Nell of New York, who came to Atlanta solely to testify, said that his character was excellent. They were followed during the next few days with other friends of Frank at school and one or two college professors who made the long trip south to be with their former fellow in his hour of need. Scores of the most widely known men in the city took the stand and said that they had never known a smirch on the character of the factory head. Efforts of the defense to introduce experiments of four men who reenacted the carrying of the body to the basement, as told on the stand by Conley, met with vigorous opposition on the part of solicitor Dorsey and attorney Hooper. Frank's attorneys sought to show that it would have taken more than twice the time to hide the body that the Negro said it would. After an argument of an hour, Judge Roan allowed the evidence. Dr. William Owens then gave an account of how he said three other men had carried a sack weighing 110 pounds, the same as Mary Fagan's body, into the basement and gone through the other alleged actions of Conley and Frank on the day of the murder. It took them more than 30 minutes, he said. Conley gave 15 minutes as the estimate of the time. On cross-examination, Attorney Hooper went thoroughly into every detail of the experiment in an attempt to discount its value. He succeeded many times during the afternoon in bringing the jury and audience to mirth. Attorney Hooper also attempted to prove that Dr. Owens was unduly interested in the case. He produced a letter written to the grand jury before the trial asking the indictment of Conley as an accessory. 
Dr. Owens said that he had written the communication at the compulsion of his conscience. When John Ashley Jones took the stand to tell of Frank's character, the state opened its first attack upon the superintendent's moral reputation. When the witness was turned over for cross-examination, Dorsey was on his feet in a minute, hurling questions one after another. You never heard it said that he took girls in his lap at the factory, did you? No. Did you ever talk to L.T. Corsi of Miss Myrtle Cater? You never heard them say that Frank would walk into the women's dressing rooms without offering any explanation for this intrusion? No. Did you ever hear of him trying to put his arm around Miss Mertis Cater and attempting to shut the door just before the factory closed one afternoon? At this point, Mrs. Ray Frank, mother of the defendant, turned in her seat and faced the solicitor. No, nor you either, she cried, you dog. It was a tense moment. The court was thrown into an uproar. Attorney Arnold, in a sympathetic voice, said, Mrs. Frank, if you stay in the courtroom, I'm afraid you'll have to hear these vile, slanderous lies, and I would suggest that if you have reached the limit of your patience, you might retire for a little while. Mrs. Frank arose and was escorted through the crowded courtroom to the door by attorney Herbert Haas and some other men of the Frank party. Mrs. Lucille Frank showed considerable emotion for the first time since her husband's trial began, and the face of the accused man flushed when the solicitor hurled his sensational question at the witness. Dorsey then continued his questioning. Do you know Tom Blackstock? No. You didn't hear how Frank stood and looked at poor little Gordy Jackson? You didn't hear how it was the talk of the factory? No. You didn't hear what he tried to do to Lula McDonald and Rachel Prater? No. You didn't hear what he said to Mrs. Pearl Dodson when he stood talking to her and her daughter with money in his hand? And you didn't hear how she hit him with a monkey wrench? No. You didn't talk to Mrs. C.D. Donegan and Miss Marion Donegan about him? No. You didn't hear how he was accustomed to slap girls and how he had nude pictures in his office? You did not talk to Mrs. Wingard of 45 Mill Street about him, did you? No. The solicitor finished his examination suddenly at this point and sat down, silence falling over the court. Mrs. Ray Frank remained away from the courtroom during the entire afternoon. She appeared in an automobile at adjournment time, however, and gave her son his usual goodnight kiss. Next day, she resumed her seat by his side, and never again during the trial did she interrupt the court with an interjection. The defense fought bitterly this attempt of Solicitor Dorsey to get the implications of these questions before the jury. Attorney Arnold repeatedly termed the tactics unfair, unjust, and unethical. Judge Roan allowed them to remain in the record, however. Thursday morning, August 14th, Solicitor Dorsey, upon the opening of court, asked that Mrs. Leo and Mrs. Ray Frank be excluded from the courtroom. He feared another outbreak like the one of Wednesday afternoon. I am only doing my duty, he said in addressing the court, and it is unfair to allow someone in the room who will heap abuse upon me. Judge Roan refused to comply with the solicitor's request when the women, through Attorney Arnold, agreed to make no more interruptions. Chapter 18. Frank's Alibi A formidable array of witnesses to corroborate Frank's alibi were introduced. Miss Helen Curran of 160 Ashby Street appeared in the case for the first time and testified that she saw Frank in front of a drugstore 
at Whitehall and Alabama Streets at 10 minutes after 1 o'clock. Mrs. M.G. Michael of Athens, an aunt of Mrs. Lucille Frank, who was visiting at the home of her sister, Mrs. C. Wolfsheimer, 387 Washington Street, a few blocks from Frank's home, declared that she had seen the factory superintendent about 2 o'clock on the afternoon of the day of the murder, as he was leaving his home on his way back to the pencil factory. She was corroborated by Jerome Michael, her son. Mrs. A.B. Levy testified that she had seen Frank get off a Georgia Avenue streetcar half a block from his home at 1.20 o'clock. Cohen Loeb testified that he had ridden downtown with Frank on a Washington streetcar, and H.J. Hinchy corroborated this witness when he said he had seen him aboard the streetcar a few minutes after 2 o'clock. Hinchy was in his automobile when he looked up and saw Frank through the window of the car. Miss Rebecca Carson declared that she and her sister had seen Frank in front of the store of M. Rich and Brothers in Whitehall Street about 2.20 o'clock, and 30 minutes later at Whitehall and Alabama Streets. Frank had been watching the Decoration Day parade in the interim, according to his statement. A number of former employees of the factory were called to testify that they had never seen improper conduct on the part of Frank, nor anybody else connected with the factory. One youth who had once been employed as an office boy declared that on last Thanksgiving Day, when Conley said he had watched for Frank, had worked with the Negro in the box room on the fourth floor of the factory. He was corroborated in this by Herbert Schiff. Several friends of the Selig family were called to testify that Frank had exhibited no signs of nervousness on the night of Saturday, April 26th. They declared that they had been guests of Mr. and Mrs. Selig, his father and mother-in-law, and that Frank, although he took no part in the card game, composedly read a paper. On one occasion, they asserted he called the attention of the card players to a joke he had come across in the paper. On cross-examination of these witnesses, Solicitor Dorsey attempted to bring out the fact that Frank attempted to appear too carefree on this night and to attract the attention of those present when he laughed so vociferously. On the afternoon of Saturday, August 16th, Mrs. Ray Frank took the stand in her son's behalf. She was called to identify a letter bearing the date of April 26th, which was supposed to have been written by her son. It was addressed to his wealthy uncle, M. Frank, who at that time was in New York on his way to Europe. Here is the letter. Atlanta, Georgia, April 26, 1913. Dear Uncle, I trust that this finds you and dear Auntie well after arriving safely in New York. I hope that you found all the dear ones well in Brooklyn, and I await a letter from you telling me how you found things there. Lucille and I are well. It is too short a time since you left for anything startling to have developed down here. The opera has Atlanta in its grip, but that ends today. I have heard a rumor that opera will not be given again in a hurry here. Today was Yandef here, and the thin gray lines of veterans, smaller each year, braved the chilly weather to do honor to their fallen comrades. Enclosed, you will find last week's report. The shipments still keep up well, though the result is not what one would wish. There is nothing new in the factory, etc., to report. Enclosed, please find the price list you desired. The next letter from me you should get on board ship. After that, I will write to the address you gave me in Frankfurt. Much love to you both, in which Lucille joins me. I am your affectionate nephew. Signed, Leo M. Frank. The communication formed another link in Frank's time alibi, as well as tending to show that he was laboring under no extraordinary mental strain on the afternoon of the murder. Friday afternoon, the defense announced that it had called 100 more witnesses to testify as to the good character of Frank. 
the majority of them turned out to be girls employed on the fourth floor of the pencil factory. Conley, in one of his statements, had asserted that the girl with whom he had caught Frank in an unnatural position was employed in this part of the factory. Mrs. E. H. Carson was one of the first of these witnesses to be called. She testified that Frank's character was good and that she had never heard a word of criticism against him about the factory. She was followed by many other women employees of the factory who testified that, so far as they knew, the character of their superintendent was beyond reproach. To all of them, Attorney Arnold put this question. Have you ever at any time met Leo M. Frank, the defendant, in the factory or anywhere else for an immoral purpose? In every instance, the answer to this question was emphatically in the negative. One woman became so perturbed when the question was put to her that she declared she would die for her superior. Miss Irene Jackson was called by the defense as a character witness, but the prosecution drew from her startling testimony. She declared that on at least three occasions, to her personal knowledge, Frank had come to the door of the girls' dressing room on the second floor of the factory and stood looking at the occupants of the room. Miss Jackson declared that not always were the girls in these apartments fully robed when the superintendent looked in. Harley Branch, a reporter for the Atlanta Journal, was called to tell of an interview with Conley when the latter was confined to the county jail. He declared that Conley had denied several weeks after the murder seeing Lemmy Quinn enter the factory on Saturday, April 26th. On cross-examination, Solicitor Dorsey developed the fact that the witness had been with the city detectives when James Conley reenacted in pantomime the concealing of the body on the day of the crime. His aim was to refute the testimony of Dr. William Owens. Branch said that Conley had taken approximately half an hour to go through his movements on that day. Nearly every one of the employees connected with the factory said that Conley had a bad character, and that they would not believe him on oath. Several of the girls cited instances when they had loaned him money and he had failed to repay it. Chapter 19. Attorneys Threatened When court adjourned at noon on Friday, August 16th, three weeks had been occupied in the taking of evidence, and the end was not yet in sight. It was predicted that all of the next week would be taken up in the introduction of rebuttal and surrebuttal evidence and arguments to the jury. This was correct. The trial did not end until near the middle of its fifth week. The lawyers were almost exhausted. It had been a severe strain on all of them. Court convened daily at 9 o'clock and remained in session until 12.30, when recess was taken for dinner. This lasted an hour and a half. At 2 o'clock, court resumed, and the evening adjournment was not taken until about 6 o'clock in the afternoon. Every one of the attorneys was constantly on the alert. If he was not questioning, he was following in his mind the trend of the testimony, ready to interpose an objection or fight over some questionable legal point. Luther Rosser, one of the most stalwart lawyers in the South, lost 25 pounds in weight. Solicitor Dorsey became pale and nervous, and Reuben Arnold and Frank Cooper showed traces of the terrific strain. The lawyers for the defense were working under an added hardship also. They received numerous threatening letters from all parts of the state. They were the communications of fanatics, who were radically in sympathy with the move of Solicitor Dorsey to send the prisoner to the gallows. During the whole trial, Reuben Arnold was followed by a bodyguard of three men, while his brother lawyer, Rosser, had two constantly at his side. They were hedged about like a president with Secret Service operatives. Telegrams and letters of advice and condemnation also poured in to the attorneys for both sides from all parts of the country. 
One man in Nashville, Tennessee, spent at least $100 in writing to Mr. Rosser suggestions and hints as to how to proceed with the presentation of the case of the defense. The Tennessean had a chart, he said, by which he could tell just what move to make next. These communications were, of course, disregarded if they ever were read. The fourth week of the trial marked a tightening of tension over the whole city. The crowds around the courthouse grew louder and more demonstrative. An added force of policemen and deputy sheriffs kept them in order. During the whole trial, Leo M. Frank was probably the coolest man directly connected with the case. His expression and bearing never changed. He was always the same stoic, impassive Frank. He stood the long, hot, grueling trial with the composure and patience he inherited from a race of people who had been persecuted for eons. His mother and his wife, too, withstood the strain well. Only on one occasion did the elder Mrs. Frank display emotion or passion. In the courtroom, she sat at the left of her son with her eyelids drooping. Mrs. Leo Frank sobbed occasionally, and frequently fondled her husband's hands while he was hearing commendation and denunciation from the mouths of witnesses. At times when the evidence against her husband seemed particularly severe, she rested her head on his shoulder and tears rolled down her face and her frame shook. Probably the most remarkable feature of the whole Frank case was the way the young man's friends stuck by his side in his hour of need. During his three months' wait in the county jail for trial, there was always one at the door of his cell, and they were present in the courtroom by the scores. Rabbi David Marks of the Atlanta Synagogue denied himself a trip to Europe that he might remain in Atlanta to comfort the president of the B'nai B'rith. Moses Frank, the millionaire uncle of the defendant, was unable to be present at the trial. He was ill in Europe, and when his nephew was charged with one of the most horrible crimes in Georgia's criminal history, he was unable to return to America. Frank's father, also, who lived in Brooklyn, New York, was unable to be present on account of ill health. The trial was the longest in the history of the South, and Frank stood it as well as any prisoner who ever faced the scaffold. Not once did he waver. The state made no attack upon his mentality. Even Solicitor Dorsey described him a mental colossus, with a brain capable of great things if driven in the right direction. The references made to the defendant in the arguments to the jury which closed the famous trial are worthy of mention. These were the comments of the four leading attorneys. Attorney Luther Z. Rosser You heard him on the stand. You can take a counterfeit dollar of the right size and the right weight, one that would fool the Secretary of the Treasury and drop it, and it will not have the ring of the genuine. Arnold or I could have told his story, but it would not have had the ring of truth to it. I have proof that I never wrote his statement. I couldn't have done it. He has more brains than either of us. You heard his story. It had the ring of truth to it, unmistakable, unrefutable. This man is a victim of suspicious circumstances. It was an awful crime, the killing of that little girl. But it is a far worse crime to accuse this young man of her murder. I hope I never see this trial duplicated in a courtroom. Attorney Reuben R. Arnold We are not claiming perfection for this defendant, gentlemen, any more than we claim it for ourselves, or you claim it for yourselves, or Solicitor Dorsey and his associates claim for themselves. But he is a moral gentleman. The greatest injustice in this case has been the whispered, unspeakable things, the very suspicion of which is damning. The state has built its case on Conley's statement, and it stands or falls with it. 
As that Negro lay in his cell at police station, he conjured up the story he has told. And it was monstrous. If we hang a man on a story like that, we are no better than grubworms. I am glad to espouse this man and fight for his cause. I know the public eventually will commend me for it. And I know my own conscience will commend me. Solicitor Hugh M. Dorsey I believe these poor, unprotected working girls who say he is of bad character. Sometimes a man of bad character uses charitable and religious organizations to mask his real self. Many a man has worked in high society and appeared without as a whited sepulcher, while he was rotten to the core within. Oscar Wilde, brilliant, whose literary works will go down through the ages, had a good reputation, but he didn't have the character. This man has a reputation, and that is all. He has no character. As sure as you are born, that man is not like other men. Others, without Mary Fagan's stamina and character, yielded to his lust. But she did not. And he strangled her to save his reputation. His hands are red with her blood. Attorney Frank A. Hooper This defendant, like Dr. Jekyll, when the shades of night came, threw aside his mask of respectability and was transformed into a Mr. Hyde. And then he did not seek the companions of Dr. Jekyll, but, like Hyde, went to a lower stratum where he picked up Dalton and his kind. And he went with them instead of the men who have come here to give him a good character. The factory was a great place for a man with lust and without conscience. No doubt the situation under which this man worked was a great temptation. Too great for him. We say a crime was premeditated that, as far back as March, Frank had his lustful eyes on this little girl. He knew that Gant, this long-legged mountaineer, was the only man in the factory who would raise his hand to protect her. So he discharged him. On the morning of Monday, August 18th, Solicitor Dorsey intimated by questions that he asked witnesses for the defense and cross-examination that he stood ready to prove that on Saturday preceding the murder, Frank was accompanied by a young girl on a long ride on the Hapeville line and that he had endeavored to induce her to leave the car at several different places. Miss Emily Mayfield, one of the employees of the factory, who was named by Miss Irene Jackson as having been in the dressing room when Frank opened the door and looked in, repudiated this testimony. She declared that on no occasion had she known the superintendent to conduct himself improperly toward the women employees. By other witnesses introduced at the twelfth hour by the defense, the solicitor brought out the fact that Frank and Conley had been on the fourth floor of the factory at the same time on the Tuesday following the murder. It was at this time, according to Conley, that Frank called him aside and admonished him to, quote, be a good boy, end quote. Chapter 20. Frank's Own Story. Frank took the stand himself Monday afternoon and with his life at stake made the most remarkable statement ever uttered in a criminal courtroom in Georgia. It was so impressive that it brought many to the belief that he was incapable and innocent of the crime charged against him. Frank began his statement at five minutes after two o'clock. He finished four hours later at five minutes after six. He talked with three brief intermissions. Twice he was interrupted by Solicitor Dorsey, who objected to the exhibition to the jury of articles not entered in evidence and once he stopped for a drink of water. When he finished, his voice was clear as at the commencement of the ordeal. With his last sentences, he held his auditors breathless. 
A newspaper man, he said, called me the silent man in the tower. I was silent because my counsel advised me to be. They told me to wait until the proper time to tell my story. This is the place. The hour is here. And gentlemen, I have told you the truth and the whole truth. At any other time, in any other place, the conclusion would have been melodramatic. Here, it was simply the final appeal of a man pleading for his life. An eloquent appeal. There was absolute silence in the courtroom, for perhaps ten seconds when Frank finished. Then the stillness was broken almost simultaneously by the sobbing of Mrs. Leo Frank and the laconic command of Attorney Arnold. Come down. The accused man stepped from the stand with just as much self-possession and just as sprightly a step as he had walked upon it four hours before. Whatever may have been the strain on his mentality, there was no physical sign to reflect it. He resumed his seat between his wife and mother. The younger woman threw her arms around him and sobbed on his shoulder. He tried to comfort her with tender affection. The mother took her son's head in her hands and kissed him passionately again and again. She, too, cried, but did not break down as did the wife, who was still convulsed when Frank was led away by the sheriff to his quarters in the tower. Where some men with their life in the balance would be nervous, Leo Frank was cool and in complete control of all his faculties. Where some men would have been overcome, he talked with the simplicity he would have employed in a commonplace conversation. Where some men's minds would have been chaotic, he performed complex mathematical problems in his brain. Beginning with his birth in Paris, Texas, he reviewed his life briefly. He told of attending school in Brooklyn, of going through college. He told of the organization of the National Pencil Company and of a trip to Europe to study the manufacture of pencils. He told of his life in Atlanta. The days since I married have been the happiest of my life, he said. Without a trace of hesitancy, he told of his actions on the day he is alleged to have murdered Mary Fagan. Calmly, he flatly contradicted the statements of Jim Conley, the Negro, whose sworn statement has placed him so close to the gallows. Quote, The statement of Conley is a tissue of lies. I know nothing about the death of the little girl, and the accusation that I called him to help dispose of the body is a monstrous lie. The statement that he saw me with women in an unnatural position is a lie so vile that I have no words to denounce it. I have no wealthy relatives in Brooklyn. My father is an invalid, and he and my mother have only enough to live moderately on. There is no fund for my defense. My attorneys will be paid by the disposal of a portion of the estate of my parents. End quote. Just as coolly, he contradicted the sworn evidence of C.B. Dalton. The statement that two women came into my office for immoral purposes is a base lie. During the recounting of his story, Frank stepped from the stand to explain the work of preparing the weekly financial sheet of the factory, a part of his circumstantial alibi. Laying his papers on the rail which fronts the jury box, he addressed the 12 men who can send him to death if they so will, with just the same earnestness one can imagine him addressing a buyer over his desk in the factory of the National Pencil Company. He discussed the figures and went through the computations as intelligently as if he did not have the weight of his life upon his shoulders. On Saturday, April 26th, I rose between 7 and 7.30 and leisurely washed and dressed, had my breakfast, caught a Washington Street or Georgia Avenue car, I don't know which, at the corner of Washington Street and Georgia Avenue, and arrived at the factory on Forsyth Street, 
the Forsyth Street plant at about 8.30. That is my recollection. On my arrival at the factory, I found Mr. Holloway, the day watchman, at his usual place, and I greeted him in my usual way. I found Alonzo Mann, the office boy, in the outer office. I took off my coat and hat and opened my desk and opened the safe, and assorted the various books and files and wire trays containing the various papers that were placed there the evening before, and distributed them in their proper places about the office. I should figure about 9.15 o'clock, a quarter after nine, Miss Maddie Smith came in and asked me for her pay envelope, and for that of her sister-in-law, and I went to the safe and unlocked it and got out the package of envelopes that Mr. Schiff had given me the evening before, and gave her the required two envelopes, and placed the remaining envelopes that I got out, that were left over from the day previous, in my cash box, where I would have them handy in case others might come in, and I wanted to have them near at hand without having to jump up and go to the safe every time in order to get them. I keep my cash box in the lower drawer on the left-hand side of my desk. Mr. Darley left with me to Montauk's about 9.35 or 9.40, and we passed out of the factory, and stopped at the corner of Hunter and Forsyth Streets, where we each had a drink at Crookshank's Soda Water Fount, where I bought a package of favorite cigarettes, and after we had our drink, we conversed together there for some time, and I lighted a cigarette, and I told him goodbye, as he went in one direction and I went on my way then to Montauk Brothers, where I arrived, as nearly as may be, at 10 o'clock or a little after. On entering Montauk Brothers, I spoke to Mr. Sig Montauk, the general manager of the business. I spoke to Miss Hattie Hall, the pencil company's stenographer, who stays at Montauk Brothers, and asked her to come over and help me that morning. Frank explained here the work awaiting him for which he needed help. I returned to Forsyth Street alone. On arrival at Forsyth Street, I went to the second or office floor, and I noticed the clock, and it indicated five minutes after 11 o'clock. I saw Mr. Holloway there, and I told him he could go as soon as he got ready. I then went into the office. I went in the outer office and found Miss Hattie Hall, who had preceded me over from Montauk's and another lady who introduced herself to me as Mrs. Arthur White, and the office boy. Mrs. Arthur White wanted to see her husband. It was about this time that I heard the elevator motor start up and the circular saw in the carpenter shop, which is right next to it, running. I heard it saw through some boards, which I supposed was the work that Mr. Holloway had referred to. It was about this time that Mrs. Emma Clark Freeman and Miss Corinthia Hall, two of the girls who worked on the fourth floor, came in and asked permission to go upstairs and get Mrs. Freeman's coat, which I readily gave, and I told them at the same time to tell Arthur White that his wife was downstairs. A short time after they left my office, two gentlemen came in, one of them a Mr. Graham and the other the father of a boy by the name of Earl Burdett. These two boys had gotten into some sort of trouble during the noon recess the day before and were taken down to police headquarters and, of course, didn't get their envelopes the night before and I gave the required pay envelopes to the two fathers and chatted with them at some length in reference to the trouble their boys had gotten into the day previous. And just before they left the office, Mrs. Emma Clark Freeman came into my office and asked permission to use the telephone. I got Miss Hattie Hall and dictated what mail I had to give her. Miss Hall finished the work and started to leave when the 12 o'clock whistle blew. She left the office and returned, it looked to me, almost immediately, calling into my office that she had forgotten something and then she left for good. Here, Frank gave a long explanation of the pencil factory method of transcribing orders. To the best of my knowledge, it must have been from 10 to 15 minutes after Miss Hall left my office when this little girl, whom I afterwards found to be Mary Fagan, 
entered my office and asked for her pay envelope. I asked for her number and she told me. I went to the cash box and took her envelope out and handed it to her, identifying the envelope by the number. She left my office and apparently had gotten as far as the door from my office leading to the outer office when she evidently stopped and asked me if the metal had arrived, and I told her no. She continued on her way out, and I heard the sound of her footsteps as she went away. It was a few moments after she asked me this question that I had an impression of a female voice saying something. I don't know which way it came from. Just passed away, and I had that impression. This little girl had evidently worked in the metal department by her question and had been laid off owing to the fact that some metal that had been ordered had not arrived at the factory. Hence her question. I only recognized this little girl from having seen her around the plant and did not know her name, simply identifying her envelope from her having called her number to me. She had left the plant hardly five minutes when Lemmy Quinn, the foreman of the plant, came in and told me that I could not keep him away from the factory, even though it was a holiday, at which I smiled and kept on working. He first asked me if Mr. Schiff had come down, and I told him he had not, and he turned around and left. I continued work until I finished this work and these requisitions, and I looked at my watch and noticed that it was a quarter to one. I called my home up on the telephone, for I knew that my wife and my mother-in-law were going to the matinee, and I wanted to know when they would have lunch. I got my house, and Manola answered the phone and said that they would have lunch immediately, and for me to come right on home. I then gathered my papers together and went upstairs to see the boys on the top floor. This must have been, since I had just looked at my watch, ten minutes to one. I noticed in the evidence of one of the witnesses, Mrs. Arthur White, she states it was 12.35, that she passed by and saw me. That is possibly true. I have no recollection about it. Perhaps her recollection is better than mine. I have no remembrance of it, however, I expect that is so. When I arrived upstairs, I saw Arthur White and Harry Denham, who had been working up there, and Mr. White's wife. I asked them if they were ready to go, and they said they had laid out some work, and I had to see what work they had done and were going to do. I asked Mr. White's wife if she was going, or would stay there, as I would be obliged to lock up the factory, and Mrs. White said no, she would go then. I went down and gathered up my papers and locked my desk and went around and washed my hands and put on my hat and coat, and locked the inner door to my office and locked the doors to the streets and started to go home. Now, gentlemen, to the best of my recollection from the time the whistle blew for 12 o'clock until after a quarter to one when I went upstairs and spoke to Arthur White and Harry Denham, I did not stir out of the inner office. But it is possible that in order to answer a call of nature, I may have gone to the toilet. Those are things that a man does unconsciously and cannot tell how many times nor when he does it. Now, sitting in my office at my desk, it is impossible for me to see out into the outer hall when the safe door is open as it was that morning. And not only is it impossible for me to see out, but it is impossible for people to see in and see me there. Frank told here of his trip home, his dinner, and his return to the factory. I unlocked the street door and then unlocked the inner door and left it open and went on upstairs to tell the boys that I had come back and wanted to know if they were ready to go. At that time, they were preparing to leave. I went immediately down to my office and opened the safe and my desk and hung up my coat and hat and started to work on the financial report, which I will explain. Mr. Schiff had not come down and there was additional work for me to do. In a few minutes after I started to work on the financial sheet, which I am going to take up in a few minutes, I heard the bell ring on the time clock outside and Arthur White and Harry Denham came into the office and Arthur White borrowed $2 from me in advance on his wages. 
I had gotten to work on the financial sheet, figuring it out, when I happened to go out to the lavatory, and on returning to the office, the door pointed out directly in front. I noticed Newt Lee, the watchman, coming from toward the head of the stairs, coming toward me. I looked at the clock and told him the night before to come back at four o'clock, for I expected to go to the baseball game. At that time, Newt Lee came along and greeted me and offered me a banana out of a yellow bag which he carried, which I presume contained bananas. I declined the banana and told him that I had no way of letting him know how long that I was going to be there at work, and that I had changed my mind about going to the ball game. I told him that he could go if he saw fit for an hour and a half, but to be sure and be back by 6.30 o'clock. He went off down the staircase leading out and I returned to my office. Now, in reference to Newt Lee, the watchman, the first night he came there to watch, I personally took him around the plant, first, second, and third floors, and into the basement, and told him that he would be required that it was his duty to go over that entire building every half hour, not only to completely tour the upper four floors, but to go down to the basement. And I specially stressed the point that that dustbin along there was one of the most dangerous places for a fire. And I wanted him to be sure and go back there every half hour and to be careful how he held his lantern. I told him it was a part of his duty to look after and lock that back door, and he fully understood it. And I showed him the cutoff for the electric current and told him in case of fire that ought to be pulled so no fireman coming in would be electrocuted. I explained everything to him in detail and told him he was to make that tour every half hour and stamp it on the time card, and that that included the basement of the building. Frank, at this point, gave an elaborate explanation of the financial sheet and his Saturday afternoon's work. I finished this work that I have just outlined at about five minutes to six, and I proceeded to take out the clock strips from the clock, which were used that day, and replace them. I won't show you these slips, but the slips that I put in that night were stamped with a blue ink, with a rubber dating stamp, April 28th, at the bottom, opposite the word date. He explained the time slips. As I was putting these time slips into the clock, as mentioned, I saw Newt Lee coming up the stairs. It was as near as may be six o'clock. I finished putting in the slip and went back to wash up, and as I was washing, I heard Newt Lee ring the bell on the clock when he registered his first punch for the night, and he went downstairs to the front door to wait my departure. After washing, I went downstairs. I put on my hat and coat and went downstairs to the front door. As I opened the front door, I saw outside on the street, on the street side of the door, Newt Lee in conversation with Mr. J. M. Gant, a man that I had let go from the office two weeks previous. They seemed to be in discussion, and Newt Lee told me that Mr. Gant wanted to go back up into the office, and he had refused him admission, because his instructions were for no one to go back into the factory after he went out, unless he got contrary instructions from Mr. Darley or myself. I spoke to Mr. Gant and asked him what he wanted. He said he had a couple pairs of shoes, a black pair and a tan pair, in the shipping room. I told Newt it would be all right to pass Gant in, and Gant went in, Newt Lee closing the door and locking it after him. I heard the bolt turn in the door. I then walked up Forsyth Street to Alabama, down Alabama to Broad Street, where I posted two letters, one to my uncle, Mr. M. Frank, and one to Mr. Pappenheimer, a few minutes after six, and continued on my way down to Jacob's Whitehall, an Alabama street store, where I went in and got a drink at the soda fount and bought my wife a box of candy. I then caught the Georgia Avenue car and arrived home about 625. Frank told of calling up Newt Lee and detailed an ordinary evening at home until he retired at 11 o'clock. 
The next day, Sunday, April 27th, I was awakened at something before 7 o'clock by the telephone ringing. I got out of bed, put on a bathrobe, and went down to answer the telephone. And a man's voice spoke to me over the phone and said, I afterwards found out this man that spoke to me was City Detective Starnes. Is this Mr. Frank, superintendent of the National Pencil Company? I says, yes, sir. He says, I want you to come down to the factory right away. I says, what's the trouble? Has there been a fire? He says, no, a tragedy. I want you to come down right away. I says, all right. He says, I'll send an automobile for you. I says, all right, and hung up and went upstairs to dress. I was in the midst of dressing to go with the people who should come for me in the automobile when the automobile drove up. The bell rang and my wife went downstairs to answer the door. She had on just a nightdress with a robe over it. I followed my wife. I wasn't completely dressed at that time, didn't have my trousers or shirt on, and as soon as I could get together, get my trousers and shirt on, I went downstairs, following my wife in a minute or two. I asked them what the trouble was, and the man who I afterwards found out was Detective Black hung his head and didn't say anything. Now, at this point, these two witnesses, Mr. Rogers and Mr. Black, differ with me on the place where the conversation occurred. I say, to the best of my recollection, it occurred right there in the house in front of my wife. They say it occurred just as I left the house, in the automobile. But be that as it may, this is the conversation. They asked me, did I know Mary Fagan? I told them I didn't. They then said to me, didn't a little girl with long hair hanging down her back come up to your office yesterday? Some time for her money. A little girl who works in the tipping plant? I said, yes, I do remember such a girl coming up to my office that I didn't know her name was Mary Fagan. Well, we want you to come down with us to the factory. And I finished dressing, and as they had said, they would bring me right back. I didn't have breakfast, but went right on with them in the automobile, made the trip to the undertaking establishment very quickly. I mean, they made the trip downtown very quickly, and stopped at the corner of Mitchell and Pryor Streets. They told me they were going to take me to the undertakers first, that they wanted me to see the body and see if I could identify the little girl. I went with them to the undertaking establishment, and one of the two men asked the attendant to show us the way into where the body was, and the attendant went down a long, dark passageway with Mr. Rogers following. Then I came, and Black brought up the rear. We walked down this long passageway until we got to a place that was apparently the door to a small room. Very dark in there. The attendant went in and suddenly switched on the electric light, and I saw the body of the little girl. Mr. Rogers walked in the room and stood to my right, inside of the room. I stood right in the door, leaning up against the right facing of the door, and Mr. Black was to the left, leaning on the left facing, but a little to my rear, and the attendant, whose name I have since learned was Mr. Geesling, was on the opposite side of the little cooling table to where I stood. In other words, the little table was between him and me. He removed a cloth, and there was a deep scratch over the left eye on the forehead, about the neck. There was twine, a piece of cord similar to that which is used at the pencil factory and also a piece of white rag. After looking at the body, I identified that little girl as the one that had been up shortly after noon, the day previous, and got her money from me. We then left the undertaking establishment, got in the automobile, and rode over to the pencil factory. Frank told here of the trip through the factory. 
Now, gentlemen, I have heard a great deal, and so have you in this trial, about nervousness, about how nervous I was that morning. Gentlemen, I was nervous. I was very nervous. I was completely unstrung. I will admit it. Imagine, awakened out of my sound sleep and a run in the cool of the morning in an automobile driven at top speed, without any food or breakfast, rushing into a dark passageway, coming into a darkened room, and then suddenly an electric light flashed on, and to see the sight that was presented by that poor little child. Why, it was a sight that was enough to drive a man to distraction. That was a sight that would have made a stone melt. And then it is suspicious, because a man who is ordinary flesh and blood should show signs of nervousness. Just imagine that little girl, in the first blush of young womanhood, had had her life so cruelly snuffed out. Might a man not be nervous who looked at such a sight? Of course, I was nervous. Any man would be nervous if he was a man. Frank told here of the trip to police station and then of his return to his home. After dinner, I read a little while and finally caught the 10 minutes of three Georgia Avenue car going downtown. I got off at the corner of Pryor and Mitchell Streets and went into the undertaker, Bloomfields, where I saw a large crowd of people nearby on the outside. On entering, I found quite a number of people who were working at the pencil factory, among whom were Mr. Schiff, Herbert Schiff, N.V. Darley, Wade Campbell, Alonzo Mann, Mr. Spilter, and Mr. Vigency. I chatted with them a few minutes, and I noticed that the people who were going in to see the body were standing in line and moving in and that others from the factory were going in, and I thought I would go in too and pay my respects. I went and stood in line, and went into the room again and stayed a few minutes in the mortuary chamber. The little girl had been cleaned up. Her hair had all been cleaned and smoothed out, and there was a nice white sheet over the rest of her body. I returned to the front of the undertaking establishment and stood chatting with Herbert Schiff and Mr. Darley until the party with whom we had made the arrangements came up and we gave them the keys with instructions as to watching the plant that night. Then Mr. Darley and Mr. Schiff and myself went down to police headquarters and went up into Chief Lanford's office, and the three of us stood talking there, answering all sorts of questions that not only Chief Lanford but the other detectives would shoot at us, and finally Mr. Darley said he would like to talk to Newt Lee. Then he went into another room, and I presume they brought Newt Lee up from the cell so he could talk to him. When Newt Lee was gone, the detective showed us the two notes and the pad back with still a few unused leaves to it, and the pencil that they claimed they had found down in the basement near the body. Frank cited vain attempts to decipher the notes of leaving, passing by the pencil factory, where they saw a morbid crowd, and of returning home. He told of going to the police station Monday and of interviewing detectives there. He also told of being taken to the pencil factory and shown blood spots on the floor of the metal room. Frank told here of retaining Harry Scott. He also told of his actions on Tuesday when he was arrested at the pencil factory and taken to police station. It was about this time they took me from upstairs to the sergeant's desk and Detective Starnes. John M. Starnes, I think his name is, came in and dictated from the original notes that were found near the body to me to get a sample of my handwriting. They took me then to a room on the top of the building and I sat in the room there and either read magazines or newspapers and talked to my friends who came to see me until I was about to retire at midnight. I had the cover of my cot turned back, and I was going to bed when Detective Scott and Detective Black, at midnight, Tuesday, April 29th, came in and said, Mr. Frank, we would like to talk to you a little bit. Come in and talk to us. I says, 
Sure, I will be only too glad to. I went with them to a little room on the top floor of the headquarters. In that room was Detective Scott and Detective Black and myself. They stressed the possibility of couples having been let into the factory at night by the night watchman, Newt Lee. I told them that I didn't know anything about it, that if I had, I certainly would have put a stop to it long ago. They said, Mr. Frank, you have never talked alone with Newt Lee. You are his boss and he respects you. See what you can do with him. We can't get anything more out of him. See if you can. I says, All right, I understand what you mean. I will do my best. Because I was only too willing to help. Black says, Now, put it strong to him. And tell him to cough up and tell all he knows. Tell him that you are here, and that he is here. And that he better open up and tell all he knows about happenings at the pencil factory. That Saturday night or you will both go to hell. Those were the detective's exact words. I told Mr. Black I caught his meaning, and in a few minutes afterwards, Detective Starnes brought up Newt Lee from the cell room. They put Newt Lee into a room and handcuffed him to a chair. I spoke to him at some length in there, but I couldn't get anything additional out of him. He said he knew nothing about couples coming in there at night, and remembering the instructions Mr. Black had given me, I said, Now, Newt, You are here, and I am here, and you had better open up and tell all you know, and tell the truth and the full truth, because you will get us both into lots of trouble if you don't tell all you know. And he answered me like an old negro. Before God, Mr. Frank, I am telling you the truth, and I have told you all I know. And the conversation ended right there. Within a minute or two afterwards, the detectives came back into the room, that is, Detective Scott and Detective Black, and then began questioning Newtley. And then it was that I had my first initiation into the third degree of the Atlanta Police Department. The way that fellow Black cursed at that poor old Negro, Newtley, was something awful. He shrieked at him. He hollowed at him. He cursed and did everything but beat him. Then they took Newtley down to a cell, and I went to my cot in the outer room. Now, before closing my statement, I wish to touch upon a couple of insinuations and accusations other than the one on the bill of indictment that have been leveled against me so far during the trial. The first is this, the fact that I would not talk to the detectives, that I would not see Jim Conley. Well, let's look into the facts a few minutes and see whether there was any reason for that or if there be any truth in that statement. On Sunday morning, I was taken down to the undertaking establishment to the factory, and I went to headquarters. I went to headquarters the second time, going there willingly without anybody coming for me. On each occasion, I answered them frankly and unreservedly, giving them the benefit of the best of my knowledge, answering all and any of their questions, and discussing the matter generally with them. On Monday, they came for me again. I went down and answered any and all of their questions and gave them a statement which they took down in writing, because I thought it was right, and I was only too glad to do it. I answered them and told them all that I knew, answering all questions. Tuesday, I was down at police station again and answered every question and discussed the matter freely and openly with them, not only with the police, but with the reporters who were around there, talked to anybody who wanted to talk with me about it, and I have even talked with them at midnight when I was just about to go to bed. Midnight was the time they chose to talk to me, but even at such an outlandish hour, I was still willing to help them. And at their instigation, I spoke to Newtley alone. But what was the result? 
They commenced and they grilled that poor Negro and put words into his mouth that I never said, and twisted not alone the English, but distorted my meaning. I just decided then and there that if that was the line of conduct they were going to pursue, I would wash my hands of them. I didn't want to have anything to do with them. On the afternoon of May 1st, I was taken to the Fulton County Tower. On May 3rd, detectives Black and Scott came up to my cell in the tower and wanted to speak to me alone without any of my friends around. I said, all right. I wanted to hear what they had to say that time. Then Black tore off something like this. Mr. Frank, we are suspicious of that man Darley. We are watching him. We have been shadowing him. Now open up and tell us what you know about him. I said, Gentlemen, you have come to the wrong man, because Mr. Darley is the soul of honor and is as true as steel. He would not do a crime like that. He couldn't do it. And Black chirped up. Come on, Scott, nothing doing. And off they go. That showed me how much reliance could be placed in either the city detectives or our own Pinkerton detectives. And I treated such conduct with silence. And it was for this reason, gentlemen, that I didn't see Conley, surrounded with a bevy of city detectives and Mr. Scott, because I knew that there would not be an action so trifling, that there was not an action so natural, but that they would distort and twist it to be used against me. Frank denied here the implication that he knew Conley could write and didn't tell the authorities. The statement of the witness Dalton, he continued, is utterly false as far as coming to my office and being introduced to me by the woman Daisy Hopkins is concerned. If Dalton was ever in the factory building with any woman, I didn't know it. I never saw Dalton in my life to know him until this crime. In reply to the statement of Miss Irene Jackson, she is wholly mistaken in supposing that I ever went to a lady's dressing room for the purpose of making improper glances into the girl's dressing room. I have no recollection of occasions of which she speaks, but I do know that that lady's dressing room on the fourth floor is a mere room in which the girls change their outer clothing. There was no bath or toilet in that room, and it had windows opening onto the street. There was no lock on the door, and I know I never went into that room at any hour when the girls were dressing. These girls were supposed to be at their work at 7 o'clock. Occasionally, I have had reports that the girls were flirting from this dressing room through the windows with men. It is also true that sometimes the girls would loiter in this room when they ought to have been doing their work. It is possible that on some occasions I looked into this room to see if the girls were doing their duty and were not using this room as a place for loitering and for flirting. These girls were not supposed to be dressing in that room after 7 o'clock, and I know that I never looked into that room at any hour when I had any reason to suppose they were dressing. Gentlemen, I know nothing whatever of the death of little Mary Fagan. I had no part in causing her death, nor do I know how she came to her death after she took her money and left my office. I never even saw Conley in the factory or anywhere else on that date, April 26, 1913. The statement of the Negro Conley is a tissue of lies from first to last. I know nothing whatever of the cause of the death of Mary Fagan, and Conley's statement as to his coming up and helping me dispose of the body, or that I had anything to do with her or to do with him that day, is a monstrous lie. The story as to women coming into the factory with me for immoral purposes is a base lie, and the few occasions that he claims to have seen me in indecent positions with women is a lie so vile that I have no language with which to fitly denounce it. I have no rich relative in Brooklyn, New York. My father is an invalid. My father and mother together, 
are people of very limited means who have barely enough upon which to live. My father is not able to work. I have no relative who has any means at all except Mr. M. Frank, who lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Nobody has raised a fund to pay the fees of my attorneys. These fees have been paid by the sacrifice in part of the small property which my parents possess. Gentlemen, some newspaper men have called me the silent man in the tower, and I kept my silence and my counsel advisedly until the proper time and place. The time is now. The place is here, and I have told you the truth, the whole truth. The court was still as Frank left the stand. With the statement of the defendant, the state rested its case. Tuesday morning, Solicitor General Dorsey opened in rebuttal. He first attacked the character of Daisy Hopkins. Numerous witnesses said that she had borne an unsavory reputation during and following the time she was employed at the factory. A streetcar motorman declared that he had visited her room by appointment one night and that she had showed him teeth marks on various parts of her body. The girl told him that her foreman had bitten her, the witness stated. A youth who had been employed in the factory for a few weeks, several months prior to the murder, declared that he had seen Frank talking to Mary on one occasion. The witness stated that the conversation had taken place in the metal room near the little girl's machine. He had heard Frank remark to her, You've got to talk to me. I'm the superintendent of this factory. This was in reply, he said, to a remark of the girl that she must get to work. On Tuesday, the state made a determined effort to prove that Frank was not of good character. A severe blow was struck when Judge Roan ruled, after an hour or more of argument between the opposing counsel, that the state could not introduce specific acts of misconduct against the defendant. As far as the court would permit him to go was to put the girls whom the state declared were willing to testify that Frank had made indecent proposals to them on the stand to testify that the accused was of bad character. This disheartened the state, but nearly a score of girls were called during the day who declared that Frank's character for lasciviousness was bad. Miss Mertice Cato was the first of these witnesses called. Are you acquainted with the general character of Leo M. Frank prior to and including April 26, 1913? Asked the prosecutor. Yes. Was that character good or bad? Bad. Did you ever work at the National Pencil Factory? Yes. When did you stop work there? On April 28th. How long did you work there? Three and a half years. What floor did you work on? The fourth floor. She is with you, gentlemen, said the solicitor, turning to the attorneys for the defense, he having exhausted the questions allowed him by the law. Come down, said Attorney Rosser. The defense thus refused to cross-question these witnesses. As it was impossible for the state to get the testimony before the jury direct, and the defense refused, the twelve jurymen were left in ignorance as to how serious that evidence might have been had it been brought out. Miss Maggie Griffin was the next witness. She testified in answer to the same questions that she knew the general character of Frank and that it was bad. She said that she worked at the factory for two and a half months and that she worked on the fourth floor. Solicitor Dorsey paused a moment and Attorney Rosser, in a low tone, asked the witness, When did you quit work at the factory? She answered that she quit in February. Wait a minute, said Solicitor Dorsey. I'm not through yet. I beg your pardon, said Attorney Rosser. 
I thought you had finished. Now, said the solicitor, I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't want you to answer it until the judge tells you whether you can answer it or not. Are you acquainted with the general character of Leo M. Frank as to his relations with women? Immediately, there was an objection from Attorney Rosser. Dorsey contended that the testimony of the defense's witness put in issue the specific phase of Frank's character. The jury was sent out. Attorney Rosser insisted that the state could not show anything but general character. I thought, said he, that your honor had ruled to that effect already. Solicitor Dorsey replied by saying, Your honor ruled that we could not show specific instances, and to that ruling we submit. This, however, is a different proposition. The statement by the defendant to the jury that he never had women in his office put that phase of his character in issue. Now, your honor, continued the solicitor, while the jury is out, I want to show by this witness that she saw Frank go into the dressing room on the fourth floor with one of the four ladies, and that no one else was in there at the time. Attorney Rosser objected strenuously. Solicitor Dorsey continued, Certainly, Your Honor, we are entitled to show that one of the very witnesses of the defense, who testified that she knew of no wrong conduct on the part of the defendant, and that she had never been guilty of any wrong conduct with him, was seen by this witness to go into the dressing room with him on the fourth floor. Judge Roan, are you offering this testimony in rebuttal to the testimony of the lady you speak of? Solicitor Dorsey, yes, sir, that's exactly the way we are offering it. Attorney Rosser objected on the ground that the testimony of their witnesses, to wit, the women who work on the fourth floor, was offered in rebuttal to the testimony of James Conley. Judge Roan, I rule, Mr. Dorsey, that if you undertake to show a distinct crime, the testimony will not be admissible. But if you offer the testimony in contradiction to the testimony of one of the witnesses for the defense, I think you can put it in. Also, I am inclined to think you can show the defendant's character as to his relations with women. Attorney Rosser met the ruling with the demand that, before the solicitor could offer the testimony as a contradiction of the defense witness, the defense witness must first be put back on the stand by the solicitor for cross-examination. This demand was based on his contention that the defense witness had testified to conduct in Frank's office. All right, said the solicitor, bring in Miss Rebecca Carson. The jury returned to the courtroom. Miss Griffin continued on the stand. Do you know the general character of Leo M. Frank as to his attitude toward women? Yes, I do. What is it? Bad. Under cross-examination by Attorney Rosser. How long did you work at the factory? Two months. What floor? Fourth. Whom did you know there? The witness named several young women. What did you do when you left the factory? I didn't work for two months, and then I went to the cotton mills. Where do you live? 84 Evans Drive, Fort McPherson. This concluded the cross-examination, and Solicitor Dorsey recalled Miss Mertice Cato. The solicitor asked Miss Cato if she knew Frank's general character as to his relations with women, and she replied, no. She was asked by Attorney Rosser where she works now. She replied, Cone's Drugstore. In reply to other questions, she said she lives at 59 Tumlin Street, and that she worked in the factory for over three years. 
Mrs. R.M. Dunnigan was the next witness. She answered the solicitor's questions, saying that she knew Frank's general character and that it was bad. In reply to the question as to whether or not she knew of Frank's relations with women, she said no. The witness stated that she worked at the factory two years ago for two or three weeks. At that time, she said she was 14 years old. She was excused without cross-examination. Mrs. H.J. Johnson of Stonewall, Georgia, was called. Mrs. Johnson said she worked at the pencil factory two months during 1910. She said Frank's general reputation was bad. Asked if she knew of his relations with women, she said, Not very much. The court held that the solicitor could ask no further questions. Many women followed in rapid succession. The defense neglected to cross-examine all except to ask them their addresses. One of the women, according to Solicitor Dorsey, was ready to testify that Frank had made an indecent proposal to her in his private office, and that she had brought a monkey wrench into use before she escaped from the room. Another, the solicitor asserted, would tell of a lascivious proposal made by Frank which indicated that he was abnormal. Miss Dewey Hewell, who was brought to Atlanta from the home of the Good Shepherd in Cincinnati, especially to testify, said that Frank had known Mary Fagan and that she had seen him in conversation with her. How often would he talk to her, the witness was asked. Sometimes two or three times a day. What did you see him do? I saw him put his hand on her shoulder. Did he do anything else? No, sir, I didn't see him do anything else. Did he call her by any name, and if so, what? Yes, sir, he called her Mary. Where did he stand when he talked to her? He would stand close to her. Wednesday afternoon, August 20th, both sides rested. The introduction of sub-rebuttal evidence took but little more than an hour in the afternoon, and the state had finished its rebuttal soon after the noon recess. The testimony of witnesses who had figured in the time alibi of Frank was attacked, as well as that of the physicians who refuted the evidence of Drs. Harris and Hurt. Nathan Sinkovitz, a pawnbroker, swore that M.E. McCoy, who earlier in the trial had testified to seeing Mary Fagan on her way to the pencil factory about 12 o'clock on the day of the murder, had pawned his watch with him in January, and that the timepiece had remained in his possession until August. Others refuted the statements of the streetcar men that Mary had not been accompanied by little George Epps when she came to town on the fatal day. Chapter 21 Lawyers Laud and Denounce Frank In an eloquent speech, replete with word pictures, sometimes sarcastic, sometimes pathetic, sometimes humorous, but at all times dramatic, attorney Frank A. Hooper, Thursday morning, opened the state's argument for the conviction of Leo M. Frank for the murder of Mary Fagan. He commenced days of oratory, unparalleled in the history of Georgia. Mr. Hooper began his speech by declaring to the jury that the state was not seeking a verdict of guilty unless the defendant was guilty, and that the state cheerfully assumed the burden of proving him guilty. This man, he said, pointing to Frank, should not be convicted because the law is seeking a victim. We are not looking for blood. We are simply seeking to find and punish the murderer of little Mary Fagan. Mr. Hooper scored the conditions existing at the pencil factory— called attention to the fact that after many witnesses had sworn that Frank's character was bad, the defense had failed to interrogate them as to why they held to such opinions. He described the defendant as a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 
a man who was congenial with two widely different sets of associates. Mr. Hooper declared that Jim Conley had stood like Stone Mountain in the face of the terrific bombardment directed at him by Attorney Rosser in an effort to break him down. The effort failed, said the speaker, because Conley had, after telling many lies, eventually arrived at the truth. Perhaps the most dramatic portion of Mr. Hooper's speech was when he said, Give the defendant the benefit of every doubt. The circumstances show that he either killed this little girl or sat there in his office and let the Negro kill her and drag her body down the hall to the elevator and take it down to the basement. This murder took place in the metal room and it occurred while Montine Stover was in Frank's office. Mr. Hooper reminded the jury that although Frank had sworn that he did not leave his office between 12 and 1 o'clock, the Stover girl had gone there during that period and found the office empty. I don't believe Frank had murder in his heart when he followed Mary Fagan back into the metal room, said Mr. Hooper. But he had in his heart the lustful passions stored up for this little girl. He was killing her when Montine Stover came to the office. Hooper touched on the evidence only in a general way. He dealt more with the law. He defined the reasonable doubt, told the jury of the value of character testimony, of the worth of circumstantial evidence. Attorney Hooper occupied less time than any of the others who followed him. Attorney Arnold, who succeeded him on the floor, argued four hours and 40 minutes, and Luther Rosser took exactly the same time. Solicitor Dorsey talked between 11 and 12 hours, making one of his longest speeches ever made by a prosecutor in a criminal case in the South. A wonderfully persuasive and convincing speaker, Mr. Arnold was perhaps never more effective than in the Frank trial. He spoke deliberately, choosing his words, pausing for emphasis, and the gestures of a master actor could not have been more dramatic. His tall form enabling him to see and be seen from every corner of the courtroom, the peculiar resonant quality of his voice rising high above all other sounds, he caught and held the attention of spectators and jury alike with the magic of his eloquence. He started by picturing the jury, as said above and apart from the public, sequestered, guarded, reading no papers and hearing nothing of the public discussion of the trial, in order that they may impartially weigh the evidence and make up their verdict without bias or prejudice. Then, turning to address the courtroom rather than the jury, Attorney Arnold excoriated the long-tongued, loud-talking sapheads who immediately conclude that a man is guilty the moment the finger of suspicion is directed towards him. He denounced those who would punish the defendant, quote, for no other reason than that he is a Jew, end quote. He declared that if Frank had not been a Jew, he never would have been prosecuted. He paid his respects to the jury by saying they are way above the average. I'm not saying this to flatter you, said he. I reckon I have tried cases before a thousand judges, and I'm telling you the simple truth. Leo Frank comes from a race of people that have made money, he said. And that has made some people envious. I tell everybody, all within hearing of my voice, that if he hadn't been a Jew, he never would have been prosecuted. That Negro Conley has been brought into court to tell his own tale, not corroborated, but prompted. I am asking my kind of people to give this man fair play. Before I do a Jew an injustice, I'd want my throat cut from ear to ear. This is a case that they've built up by degrees. They've got a monstrous perjurer here by the name of Conley. 
And they brought a man up here who, before this crime, nobody had ever said a word against, and asked you to believe this Negro against him. There is always such evidence in a criminal case and always a premonition of such evidence. After the trial was in progress two or three weeks, they got a lot of floaters and they testified. In my criminal experience, I've seen a lot of such witnesses. I don't know whether it's imagination that makes them do it, but there is a certain class that is always ready to offer evidence. We've got a lot in this case that shouldn't be in. It's been put in to prejudice your mind against the defendant. He took up every detail of the state's theory, and with powerful logic undertook to show that this theory is unreasonable and absurd. Then as to Conley. If he had been the solicitor and the Negro had been the defendant charged with the murder of Mary Fagan, Attorney Arnold could not have surpassed himself in trying to convince the jury of Conley's guilt. He argued that the brutal manner in which Mary Fagan was killed is characteristic of a Negro. This man, said he, of Frank, does not come of a violent race. He argued that Conley's opportunity for killing the girl was vastly better than Frank's opportunity. His theory, constructed with consummate skill, was this. That Conley, on that Saturday morning, was half drunk. His passions inflamed, crazy for money. That he lurked in the dark passageway on the first floor at the foot of the stairs, according to his own admission. That he watched with greedy eyes every woman and girl who passed, as shown by his describing on the witness stand in minute detail the kind of dresses and shoes worn by the girls. That Mary Fagan came down the stairs with her mesh bag in her hand. That Conley grabbed it. She refused to turn it loose and screamed. He struck her the blow over the left eye and knocked her down. And she got the blow on the back of the head as she fell. That Conley dropped her body through the elevator shaft, hung around the factory until Frank left, went down into the basement and finished his brutal work. That then, finding the front door locked and also being afraid to show himself on the front, broke open the back door of the basement and went his way. The law is that before a man can be convicted on circumstantial evidence, the circumstances must be so strong as to exclude every other reasonable hypothesis, except that of the guilt of the accused. If Attorney Arnold himself had laid down this principle to fit his case, he could not have made it fit the case more perfectly to suit his immediate purpose of clearing Frank. His job was to convince the jury that Mary Fagan's murder can be explained just as easily, if not more easily, on the theory that Conley did it, as on the theory that Frank did it. Suspicion, he said, first was directed to Frank because he was the only man in the factory. He was the only man who had an opportunity to do it. Denham and White were on the fourth floor, and probably Mrs. White, too. They say they don't know anything about it, and I don't believe they do. Nobody knew anybody was down by that elevator hole, the most favorable part of the factory for a crime, until long after Frank had been arrested. It did not crop up for weeks. But by that time, the police were after Frank. First, they started on Newt Lee. If he had been a weak and yielding Negro and had seen he could get favor from the police by telling a fairy tale on Frank, the police would have thought they had put a feather in their cap. Mr. Starnes may think he is working for truth and justice, but I don't think so. It's like that decision from the Court of Appeals that I read to you this morning. Evidence gained by persecution or torture, or the third degree, is dangerous evidence. I don't believe Starnes or Black would write out something and say, swear to that. 
they didn't have to. Conley could construct a whole story simply because they said to him, you can't swear to that. Nobody will believe you. I've heard people say that Conley couldn't have thought this up. He didn't have the imagination. Everybody who has ever been around a courthouse much knows that Negroes, like children, have an unlimited capacity for imagination. My friend Hooper this morning said, how did he know so much about Frank? He pointed to that word, chat. Why, everybody knows that Negroes mock their bosses and try to learn their expressions. I've seen three or four of them together trying to talk like their boss does. As that Negro lay in his cell at police station, he conjured up the story that he has told. And it was monstrous. I don't suppose much was thought of when Conley said he couldn't write. A lot of Negroes can't. But then they found the pawn tickets after two or three weeks, and the writing on them was identical with the writing on the notes. They confronted Jim with it, and finally he admitted it. As soon as he copied off the notes, it was apparent that he wrote the originals. Seeing he was caught, he finally made this first miserable confession. He was conjuring up a plot to save himself. He had weeks and weeks to do it. He knew they were trying to make a case against Frank. He knew they were trying to indict Frank. It was the most natural thing in the world for him to put the blame on Frank. And he had smooth sailing in doing it. When he did it, he said he did it because Frank wouldn't stick to him. I don't suppose in criminal annals a prisoner ever had a better chance to lay a crime on another than here. And he had earnest hearers. These detectives were afraid they would be criticized if they did not press the case against Frank. He was a well-known man. I am partisan, gentlemen, and I admit it. And the solicitor says that he is not. God knows, gentlemen, I've never heard such partisanship in any court before. I never heard a solicitor general, sworn to enforce the law impartially, says, I'll go as far as the court will let me. He said when checked by the court. How far did he go out of court? Nobody but God will ever know. And if the length the Solicitor General, that high official, has gone, can be measured only by the infinite, to what length do you suppose these detectives went? There is only one other man besides Dalton who said that he, Dalton, had been to the factory with a woman. And he said that Dalton went into the factory with a woman between one and two o'clock, when Frank always was at lunch. This man, and I have no reason to believe he was not telling the truth, says that he only saw Dalton enter the front door and does not know where he went inside the building. That was at a time when the same entrance was used by the Clark Woodenware Company and by the pencil factory. But, gentlemen, I am prepared to admit that Dalton left an oozy trail of a serpent, whether he went to the factory or to the Woodenware Company. Now, gentlemen, is there anything else except the incidents where Frank was connected? And I'm coming to that later. Against the factory? Is there anything indecent, anything that would make it different from other factories? Think of a factory that had on it the keen eyes of Starnes, who stops at nothing. The watchful eyes of Black, whom I love and whom I want to put my arms around every time I see him. And the eagle eyes of Pat Campbell, who didn't dare to go on the stand for fear I'd ask him how he got those statements from Conley. And the eyes of Scott, who was one of that lovely quartet. Is there a factory in Georgia that could stand the searching probe which they gave this one? Let us see. In the first place, we've had a mighty upheaval in Atlanta in the last year or two. My friend Beavers has written a new decalogue, 
and he has searched the town with a fine-tooth comb, hunting for wrongdoers. He has put on a vice squad. I was near saying an immoral squad, but I won't. A vice squad has been searching the city for every louse on the head of the body politic. Had this factory been polluted, would it have escaped? Would Schiff over there, or Dalton, or any one of a hundred others be at large today if they had been running a disorderly house in that factory? One of the cruelest things that my friend Hooper said, and he doesn't want to be cruel, he is so mild that he can't do much harm, was that the evidence showed that Schiff and Darley were immoral. There's not a thing to show guilt or misconduct on the part of that man Schiff. Not a line of evidence. Solicitor General Hugh M. Dorsey's speech was the most remarkable of the trial. He was on the floor more than 11 hours and talked on parts of three different days. Beginning when Attorney Rosser closed Friday afternoon, he talked until adjournment resumed again Saturday morning and spoke without a stop until 2 o'clock in the afternoon, when court recessed until Monday morning. On Monday, he resumed his argument and did not complete his address until noon. The principal reason for the long adjournment was the fear of returning a verdict on Saturday night with the center of town flooded with people. Dorsey covered every point of the case fully and faithfully. He clinched every fact he had brought out. And his arraignment of Frank was probably the most bitter that has ever been aimed at a defendant in a murder trial in the whole country. He termed him a, quote, man with a reputation but no character, end quote, as a, quote, man not like other man, end quote, and likened him to Oscar Wilde, the famous literary genius, to Durant, the famous San Francisco slayer, and to Pastor Richeson of Boston. Every time he emerged from the building, Dorsey was greeted with plaudits. The bulk of the people commended his attitude and his wonderful effort to make sure the conviction of the young factory superintendent. This is not only an important case. It is an extraordinary case. The crime was extraordinary. An awful crime. A most heinous crime. The crime of a demoniac. The crime demanded vigilant, earnest, conscientious effort on the part of your detectives and on my part. And it demands earnest consideration on your part. It is important because of the importance, standing, and ability of counsel pitted against us. Four of them. Messrs. Arnold and Rosser and the two Messrs. Haas. Extraordinary because of the defendant. Extraordinary because of the manner in which these gentlemen have argued the case. Mr. Rosser, the rider of the wind and stirrer of the storm, and Mr. Arnold, as mild a mannered man as ever cut a throat or scuttled a ship. They have conducted themselves extraordinarily. They have maligned and abused me and the detectives. They heaped calumny on me to such an extent that the good mother of the defendant here arose, and in this presence denounced me as a dog. It is an old adage, and it is true, that no thief ever felt the halter draw with a good opinion of the law. Turning toward the defendant and his party of friends, Mr. Dorsey continued. I don't want your good opinion. I neither ask it nor seek it. And if you did give it to me, I would doubt my own honesty. Prejudice and perjury, says Mr. Arnold. And then they use that stereotyped phrase, it fatigues my indignation to argue this case. Don't let this precious indignation disturb your nerve and deter you from your duty. They ought to have been indignant. They have been paid to play the part. Prejudice and perjury, they say, gentlemen. 
Do you think that I or the detectives have been actuated by prejudice? Would we, sworn officers of the law, have sought to hang this man because of racial and religious prejudice and passed up Jim Conley, a Negro? Prejudice. When Gant was arrested and then released. When Lee was arrested and exonerated. But when you get Frank, you get prejudice, they say. Let us see. They were disappointed. The case was not pitched on the fact that this defendant is a Jew. By no word or act in this case have we indicated that he was Jew or Gentile or black or white. We would have despised ourselves if we had asked for conviction on account of prejudice. The first time prejudice was brought into the case, it was brought in by them and brought in for a purpose. Never have I seen two men so delighted as Rosser and Arnold when they put those questions to Kenley. Never will I forget that scene. We did not put it in, and prejudice is not in this case. Mark you, they, not us, raise the cry of prejudice. I say here and now the race from which this defendant comes is as good as ours. His ancestors were civilized when ours were eating human flesh. I honor the race that produced Israeli. I honor the race that produced J.P. Benjamin, as great a lawyer as ever lived in America or England. And he lived in both. I honor Strauss, the diplomat, and the man who went down with the Titanic. I roomed with a man of this defendant's race at college, and one of them is my business partner. I honor Rabbi Marx, and I listen to him with pleasure and pride. But, gentlemen, when Becker wished to put to death Rosenthal, it was men of Rosenthal's race that he sought for his purpose. Abe Hummel has died in New York, and Abe Roof in San Francisco, and Swartz has paid the penalty for stabbing a little girl. These things show that this great people are amenable to the same laws as you and I, and the same laws as an American. This defendant has not a good character, I submit. He has a good reputation among the people who do not know his real character. But suppose he had a good character. That amounts to nothing. David of old was a great character until he put old Uriah into the forefront of a great battle, so he would be killed and David could take his wife. Benedict Arnold was brave. He enjoyed the confidence of all the people and those in charge of the Revolutionary War, until he betrayed his country. Oscar Wilde, an Irish knight, a literary man, brilliant, the author of works that will go down through the ages, a man who had the effrontery when the Marquis of Queensbury thought there was something wrong between Wilde and the son of the Marquis, to withstand one of the greatest cross-examinations on record. Oscar Wilde, that man, bore a good reputation until he was proven guilty. Wherever the English language is read, the coolness of that man who underwent the cross-examination of those able lawyers will remain, forever, a study for lawyers. Not even Oscar Wilde's wife nor his children knew of his perversion. And it never would have been discovered had not one man had the boldness to start an investigation that eventually sent him to prison. He was a literary man, whose cross-examination is a thing to be read with admiration. But he was convicted, and in his tottering old age, he confessed. He is the man who raised the sunflower from the rank of weed to that of flower. But he was a pervert, a man of previous good character. Abe Roof of San Francisco, a man of his religion, pointing to Frank, was of previous good character, but he corrupted Smith and everything that he came in touch with. 
Ruth's career terminated in the penitentiary eventually. Good character isn't worth a cent, gentlemen, if you've got a case proved. And crime doesn't go only with the poor. The ignorant, like Jim Conley, commit small crimes. But a man of high intellect sometimes commits a big one. An intellect which, if directed in the right line, would bring honor and glory. But which, if not so directed, drags a man down to the depths. As in the case of this defendant before you. Look at McCune, the mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia. Notwithstanding his good reputation, he did not have a rock bed of character. Tiring of his wife, he shot her in the back as she was in the bathtub. And a jury of brave Virginians sent him to a felon's grave. He had the respect of the people. Richeson, of Boston, was a preacher and enjoyed the confidence of his flock. He was engaged to marry a fascinating young woman of Boston but he was entangled with another young woman of whom he wanted to rid himself, and he forgot himself so far as to murder. All these cases were decided on circumstantial evidence. After Richeson had fought through the courts, he hoped that a governor would save his life. But a Massachusetts jury and a Massachusetts governor were brave enough to make him pay the lawful penalty for his crime. That's an example to encourage every right-thinking man. Henry Clay Beatty, a man of splendid family, a man of wealthy family, proved his character, although he didn't possess it. He took his wife, the mother of a 12-month-old baby, out for an automobile ride and shot her in cold blood. Yet that man, looking at the blood in the automobile, joked. He was cool and calm, but he joked too much. The detectives in that case, as in this case, were maligned and abused. There was a slush fund to save him from the gallows. But a jury of Virginia farmers sent him to his doom and put the citizenry of that great commonwealth on a higher plane. Beattie never confessed, but left a note to be read after he was dead, in which he admitted the crime charged against him. Then there was Crippen of England. He was a doctor, a man of high standing, a man of unblemished reputation. He killed his wife because of an infatuation for another woman. He hid her body away where he thought, as this man thought, pointing to Frank, that it would never be discovered. But murder will out. The body was discovered. And Crippen was executed to the glory of old England. Gentlemen, you have an opportunity that comes to few men. Measure up to it. You say that Conley has been impeached? I say that he has not been impeached except by those with their hands in the till of the National Pencil Factory. His general character is unimpeached except by the words of the hirelings of the National Pencil Factory. Yet you would say that he committed this crime, when all you have been able to bring up against him, despite the fact that they have interviewed all of his former employers, is that he has been locked up in police station on the charge of disorderly conduct. Is Conley sustained? Yes, abundantly. Our proof of the general bad character of Frank sustains Jim Conley. Your failure to examine these harebrained fanatics, as Mr. Arnold calls them without rhyme or reason, sustains Jim Conley. His relations with Miss Rebecca Carson, who is shown to have gone to the dressing room with him, sustain Jim Conley. Your own witness, Miss Jackson, says that this libertine and rake went into the dressing room and stood with a sardonic grin. 
She sustains Jim Conley. Miss Kitchens, who worked on the fourth floor, and whom you did not produce, by her statement of how he went to the dressing room, sustains Jim Conley. Darley and Miss Maddie Smith, as to what they did April 26th, sustain Jim Conley. Truman McCrary, the Negro whom you praise and who gets his living from the pencil factory, sustains Jim Conley as to where he put those sacks. Montine Stover, who went in just at the minute that Frank was back in the metal room with the poor, unfortunate girl, sustains Jim Conley by the statement of the kind of shoes she wore. Montine Stover, when she says that nobody was in the office, sustains Jim Conley, as to his statement that he heard the footsteps of two people going back. Lemmy Quinn, your own dear Lemmy, when his statement is taken with the evidence of Miss Hall and Mrs. Freeman, sustains Jim Conley. Dalton, whose character for the past ten years we have sustained, sustains Jim Conley about previous Saturdays. Daisy Hopkins, by her awful reputation, sustains Jim Conley. The blood on the second floor sustains Jim Conley. The testimony of Holloway, as given in the affidavit to me, and Boots Rogers' statement that the elevator box was unlocked, both sustain Jim Conley. Ivy Jones, whom he met near the factory, sustains Jim Conley. Albert McKnight, who testified as to the time Frank reached home and the time he left, sustains Jim Conley. The repudiated affidavit of Manola McKnight, whose attorney let her sign it when he knew he could get her out on a habeas corpus, sustains Jim Conley. The noose in that cord sustains Jim Conley. The existence of the notes alone sustains Jim Conley, because no Negro in the history of the race ever wrote a note to cover a crime. The character of words used in the notes sustains Jim Conley. Take up the context. The note said she was assaulted when she went back for a natural purpose. And the only toilet Mary knew was in the metal room on the second floor. The fact that the note said the Negro did this by himself showed a conscious effort to limit the crime. Frank, by his own statement, sustains Jim Conley as to the time of his arrival at the office, the time of his visit to the Montauk's, and as to the fact that he carried a folder in his hand. Arthur White, according to his statement, borrowed $2 in the afternoon. Where is the entry to show that Frank put down that loan? The fact that there is no entry sustains Jim Conley in his description that Frank's mind was burdened with the problem of disposing of the body. Frank said, We found it better to get a voucher book and let everybody sign for what money they got notwithstanding that they failed or refused to produce a record showing that White ever got that money. I'll tell you the reason why he didn't enter it. It was because his mind and conscience were on the crime he had just committed. You tell me that this expert bookkeeper, this Cornell graduate, would have overlooked that. There was only one reason why he did. Conley is sustained by Frank when Conley says he remarked that he had relatives in Brooklyn. When old Jim was on the stand, Mr. Rosser asked him about Mincy. Is Mincy a myth, or is he such a diabolical perjurer that it would nauseate the stomach of you gentlemen to produce him before you? Turning to Mr. Arnold and Mr. Rosser. If you weren't going to produce Mincy, why did you parade him before the jury? Gentlemen, the absence of Mincy corroborates Jim Conley. Gentlemen, every act of that defendant proclaims him guilty. Every word proclaims his knowledge of the death of little Mary Fagan. Every circumstance proves him responsible for the murder of that little girl. 
remarkable? Yes, but true. She died a noble death without a stain on her name. She wouldn't yield her virtue to her superintendent, and he strangled her and killed her. In the language of Daniel Webster, when a jury, through whimsical and unfounded scruples, fails to do its duty, it violates its oath. What happened to her mesh bag? I wouldn't be surprised if it disappeared in the same way that the stick on the first floor and the bloody shirt at Newt Lee's house made their appearance. The first thing that he did when he gagged the little girl with her own underskirt, when he had gagged this little girl, who went to her death for her honor, a terrific piercing scream from Mrs. Coleman interrupted. The mother of the dead girl cried very audibly and was not quieted for several minutes. Mrs. Lucille Frank, wife of the accused, and Mrs. Ray Frank, his mother, both covered their eyes with their hands and appeared to be affected. Chapter 22. Fear Lynching Precedes Verdict. Displaying visible evidence of physical exhaustion, Solicitor Dorsey concluded his speech exactly at 12 o'clock Monday. His voice ringing through the crowded room, which had been held speechless, he turned to Judge Roan and said, Your Honor, I have done my duty. I have no apology to make. So far as the state is concerned, you now can charge this jury. This jury sworn to be without prejudice or bias. This jury sworn to try well and truly Leo M. Frank. I beg that under the law you give them your opinion of the evidence. There can be but one verdict. We, the jury, find this defendant guilty. Guilty, guilty. As the final words sounded through the room, the gong on the Catholic Church a block away from the courthouse sounded. With each intonation of guilty, 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 the bell clanged. This phenomena had a visible effect upon the audience, jury, and court attaches. Judge Roan immediately began reading his charge. He concluded at 12.47 o'clock. The long trial was at an end. Almost. It remained only for the jury to render its verdict. Would they send Frank to the gallows, or would they liberate him and place him once more among his fellow men, unequal? The whole city asked itself this question. Feeling was intense. Solicitor Dorsey had been applauded every time the crowd caught a glimpse of him. Such demonstrations never had been made over a prosecutor in Atlanta before. 2,000 people remained in the vicinity of the courthouse all of Saturday. It was with difficulty that the police handled the mass. An outbreak was feared. Race differences were freely discussed. There was talk of violence in the event of an acquittal, and the officers of the 5th Regiment were instructed by the Adjutant General of the state to remain within reach in case it became necessary to call out the militia to prevent any attempt at violence should such occur. At 12.47, Judge Roan finished his charge. In it, he told the talesmen that they were the sole judges of the evidence and of the credibility of the witnesses. He defined and explained the numerous points of law that arouse in the case and gave them specific instructions as to the consideration of circumstantial evidence. The jury was taken from the courtroom shortly before 1 o'clock and conducted across the street to cafe for dinner. Ten minutes later, when Solicitor Dorsey left the building to go across the street to his office, 
he was picked up and carried on the shoulders of the crowd. Hurrah for Dorsey, seemed the universal cry. An hour later, the jury was returned to the courthouse to begin its deliberation. The 12 men were assigned to a room on the fourth floor. Downstairs, the courtroom was thronged. The streets outside for a block in each direction were covered with a mass of humanity kept in motion by the police. Shortly after 3 o'clock, Foreman Winburn of the jury rapped on the door and told Deputy Sheriff Plenty Minor that a verdict had been reached. It was later disclosed that the talesman had reached a unanimous opinion on the second ballot. Judge Roan was summoned from his home, and Solicitor Dorsey was called. Attorneys Rosser and Arnold could not be located, and the verdict was received by the court without their presence. Before the verdict was received, Judge Roan ordered the courtroom cleared. When the twelve good men and true marched downstairs and entered the courtroom, there were only a few attorneys, the court attaches, and a score or more newspaper men present. The defendant had waived his presence and remained in his cell at the tower. This was done to prevent a possible outbreak. Neither his wife nor his mother were in attendance. Friends of the defendant, too, and the members of his religion were absent. This kept the vast crowd in the vicinity of the courtroom from violence if any had been intended. A stillness fell over the courtroom when the jurymen took their seats in the box. Each man wore the solemn expression which, interpreted, could mean but one thing. Gentlemen, have you arrived at a verdict? asked Judge Roan formally. We have, replied Foreman Winburn. Read it, commanded the court. The foreman arose in his seat and, holding the verdict in his hand, read, We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. The End